Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 119. I am your host, Walter, and joining me today are Azil. Hey, everybody. Griffith. Hey, hey. And Gobbs. Hello, hello. And Grail. Hi. We're back for a very important episode of the Skullcast, and we wanted to start with talking about why it's so special. Just this past Friday, the Big Berserk exhibition finally kicked off, and so we got our first look at the inside of the venue. Saw lots of original manuscripts on the walls, which is very cool to see. Friday also released uh, a Young Animal magazine dedicated pretty much to Berserk. With a cover about with guts on the front, it has episode 364 inside, and it has some special inserts, and we'll get some of those in a, in a minute. Um, Azil, you have followed the exhibition and the updates pretty closely, so I want to turn it over to you for a second to talk about, you know, what would you say is notable uh, about the exhibition? For those that obviously can't be there, what do you think is notable to know about it? Sure. Well, like you said, there's over 300 uh, illustrations. So that includes original manuscripts. So that would be two-page spreads or single full pages that Mira did. There's also a lot of uh, paintings and other color illustrations he did. For the digital era, it's printouts, but for the times he actually painted and drew on paper, it's all the originals. So you get to see, when you see close-ups of them, you get to see his technique, how it worked. For example, the fact the blacks, when you get full blacks, he did that with a marker of a, of a kind, and you can see every stroke, and uh, it was then smoothed out in editing so it's interesting to see how things were done at that time. Uh, along with that, there's a bunch of uh, dioramas. So um, there's the Elfelm one with uh, little pucks doing things. So you get King Puck, Puck fishing, Puck playing with a mushroom and whatnot, little scenes from the manga. And those are things that are not commercially available. So that's pretty neat. There's also a great one of uh, Casca's Nightmare with the dog, the coffin, the broken doll and the little sprite on top, and this is really uh, life-sized, so that's pretty amazing. And there's even one yeah. of uh, Cheech and a plant in the prison cell, which uh, is probably my favorite, I just love it. Uh, and those are, of course, only the ones we can see because there's parts of the exhibition you, you we don't have access to, like the Eclipse reproduction, where they've got um, basically the hand, uh, the members of the god hand on top of it, and uh, all that stuff. So that, that's pretty neat, but not available to, to photograph, unfortunately. Yeah, and uh, there's also the reproduction of Miura's workspace, along with a video interview of Miura that was recorded in December. Yep. So that's also, of course, the one everyone wants to see, and you mm -hmm. can't uh, take pictures of it. And there are people in the exhibition uh, who make sure you can't take picture of it because uh, we, we've tried to get some, some pictures of that. I, I got a guy I know who snapped a few shots and he was told not to do it so oh. yeah mm. uh i hope there's like a big poster of zod with his hand up you know like stop <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just people so flash photography is not allowed but even even beyond that they just don't want picture uh, people taking picture of uh, pictures of some of the manuscripts and so for the walking space so you got his desk some statues uh he had on the desk uh, there's uh, many memorial drawings that all the mangaka did for him. And of course, there's a video interview he did in uh, December uh, 2020 when the exhibition was anticipated to take place in January 21. So it's a bit outdated, but what can you do? It's, uh, it's the best we got. And that one was originally meant to only be shown to a select audience uh, during a special preview night. 
Uh, and because of what happened, uh, they made it available to everyone, which is pretty cool. They could have also just not shown it, so so that's nice. Yeah. The other thing is the the art book is also on sale at the event, but I don't think I've seen anything from it other than the cover and the back. I have not seen anything of the inside or impressions of the inside of the art book, uh, but there is supposedly an interview in there as well. Good point. One last thing I didn't mention is the Zod statue. So if, yeah, you, if, you, if you remember, uh, there was a crowdfunding campaign which uh, several members of Scanlon had participated in, and so they built a a big study of Zod. So I expected, I was honestly a bit disappointed with it. I expected it to be a full-size statue, but instead they went for just the head, shoulders, and the arms. Uh, and he kind of comes out of the wall. They made some things. He also that look- looks kind of fuzzy. Like, you know, it, he mm-hmm. looks very hairy. It's like, like, yeah. a, and not like, you know, hairy, like it's a taxidermy of a bear. It's more like, he looks kind of like a big stuffed animal. I felt like, you know, it's yeah. yeah. more glossy than I was expecting. Yeah. Yeah. It's clean. He got shampooed up for the event. Yeah. That's what happened. <laughs> they took him to the doggy, you know, like shampoo place. It's fresh. <laughs> it's one of those things that I'm glad they ended up making, but it ended up look, looking really silly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they also made him uh, twice bigger than he is in the, in the manga. I, I think the reason they went for that is because it's um, probably due to the limited selling height of the venue. Mm. Yeah. Because right. it's, it's already basically at the maximum height. So they couldn't have put actual Zod there standing, but I was still a bit disappointed. Wait, you're saying he's half the size that he is in the manga? No, he's actually twice bigger, but because he's just... It's weird that they made half of him, but twice as big. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it is weird. It's a, it's a strange choice, um, but what can you do? Anyway... It would have been funny if they had actually made this the statue as if it was Zod, like, you know, sort of having to duck his head in the room, you know, with his hands on the It would have been cooler looking, actually. Like like he's, you know, stuck in there. He's busting out. Yeah, that would have been, I don't know, I think I would have preferred him bursting out of the wall or something. Exactly, like making it seem like he's about to burst through the ceiling and get out. Yeah, and those guys, I mean, the company, they contracted for it at a long time to do it too, but, yeah, I don't know. I think that's just beyond their... Their purview. They did. Uh, they did mention that Mura gave some advice on uh, how to do it, like on how to connect the arms with the shoulders. So uh, yeah, he did have some mm-hmm. input. And to get back to the yard book, so yeah, that's the other thing is uh, there's it's, there's a pretty good attendance so far for the event, given the COVID nineteen situation. Uh, they had lottery tickets and all of that. And uh, and there's a very, very high demand for the merchandise being sold in the exhibition shop. Uh, and for good measure, because Berserk was never heavily merchandised and they pulled the stop for this event. So it means there's more stuff available in that shop than there ever has been in the past 30 years for Berserk, with the exception of statues, uh, which have been a, a mainstay. But otherwise... Uh, you get reproductions of the two-page spreads. You get color illustrations, which are especially popular, these two. And obviously, there's the book, which seems to compile most of the art shown at the exhibition, if not all of it. So that's a pretty big deal because the official picture we saw of it uh, a while back made it look unassuming. I even thought it was kind of a, you know, a flimsy mm-hmm. 70 pages thing, but it's actually a thick and heavy book, a rigid cover and everything it looks pretty high quality. So I'm actually really eager to get my hands on it. And the problem of course is for now, it's only available at the venue. Um, I do think it will be available outside of the event. Uh, we just have to wait until uh, 
this showing in Tokyo is over and then they might open it up. But I'm pretty convinced it will be sold online sooner or later and also that it will eventually be released into Western countries by local publishers. But for now, it's a scalper's paradise. So people are just reselling it for triple the price uh, on auction sites. Yeah, it, it only makes sense to print more because it's not like they have to redesign it or go to a special manufacturer or printer to make more. It's already been designed, so they just find a new printer for them and print more. It's different from, you know, event-exclusive things like, you know, a tie or something like that or a specially framed reproduction of one of the pieces of art. That's a little bit more of a production. Well, for, for some of the items, uh, it's definitely not guaranteed at all that they will be available later on. But Certainly things that are like, yeah, like sort of, you know, commemorative, I was there kind of items. Yeah. Yeah. The art book, however, I think... A lot of general interest in that. Yeah, there's also, they've also included uh, Mura's interviews, the video interviews have probably... I mean, they said they've included an interview of Mura. We don't know which one. I'm assuming it's the uh, the one from the from the videos that he did for the exhibition. So we'll see. But I would be really surprised if it was not made available uh, more widely later on. I would honestly be very surprised. So we'll we'll see. But I'm pretty confident about it. Uh, however, for all the stuff like uh, I think Walter mentioned the uh, uh, color illustration reproductions in high fidelity with frames and stuff. That kind of stuff, yeah, most likely uh, if you're not getting it now, you're never getting it. Uh, but meh, I'm, I'm not sure. These are very expensive. Mm -hmm. Not that many people are getting them anyway. There's a delay of three months to get one. You have to uh, cu custom order it. Then they'll make it and send it to you uh, to your place three months later. So uh, these, I mean, either you go get it there or you're just never getting it. And I don't think they'll be found on uh, reselling websites or anything either. Uh, I wanted to do a slight tangent about the Miura video interview. Now, of course, we haven't seen it, and I sincerely doubt we will ever see that video. It's probably a venue-specific thing, particularly given that they're not allowing recording in that particular area. That seems like an exclusive thing. Yeah, that's probably the one thing they absolutely will not let anyone record. Yeah, I would bet. But um, on Twitter, one person did give a very brief overview of like a, a blurb of some of the things that Miura had said in that interview. Uh, the, the short version of that is just pretty much confirming what we expected. Uh, the timing of that interview was in December of last year. And he says that uh, the past of the Skull Knight will be touched on. Guts and Griffith will cross swords. The journey with Guts and his friends will end and a new, ch new chapter will begin. It sounds very exciting, like you're looking, getting a glimpse into the future until you realize all of those are just bullet points for the, what we expected from the future anyway. Uh, and in fact, Mira had already commented on the Guts and Griffith thing in an interview two years ago. Um, so nothing really too new, at least from that. But I expect to hear more if, later. If anything, I would only read into it that we might have been with uh, you know, Guts and Griffith, uh, spoiler alert, uh, maybe confronting each other soon here. Maybe we would have mm -hmm. been close to a chapter end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not too far from now before the final. Yeah, chapter of Elf Island, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the final chapter, presumably, uh, started. Mm. Mm, I don't yeah. know about the final one, but yeah. What's important, the, the reason Walter mentions this, uh, speaking to the audience here, is uh, some people got really excited. They were like, what is this going to be? Because the guy who tweeted this, he's Japanese. He, he tweeted in English because uh, probably there was a lot of demand. 
about what he understood was being said. And so he, the way he worded it was as if there was some specific Skull Knight backstory that was going to be published. Uh, and people were like, wow, is this going to be a specific manga, a new series just for the Skull Knight and whatnot? And no, it's obviously not uh, what Mira meant. He was just talking about what we got in episode 362. And for the Gods and Griffiths confrontation, while well, he's talking about uh, what would have been the next episode, 365. So all these things, they're pretty obvious. Uh, the fact the journey uh, is coming to an end, well, yeah, sure. In fact, it's already come to an end uh, since Casca was uh, awakened on the island. But obviously a new journey will start afterwards with another purpose. And uh, as for um, committing to uh, you know what was left of the story, all that other stuff, it's also things we basically already knew were coming, but uh, that Mira is reiterating here. So nothing really new, nothing worth getting overly excited about. Well, I understand the, the rush to excitement because that interview is especially valuable to fans now because it's, of course, delivered posthumously. So you want to know anything that Mira said about the future, you're going to pay special attention to. But it's just based on that tweet, there's really nothing to say that we didn't already expect. So that's... Uh... And the thing is, Mira, I mean, obviously, he didn't reveal too much about future developments. Of course. Uh, this was just, at the time he recorded it, it was just meant to be a sneak peek at the very near future. And it was mm -hmm. also originally meant to be shown to a select crowd. So it would have been just like a little thing, you're private to just a glimpse because you get that lottery ticket. And he kept it vague on purpose because he still wanted people to be surprised and delighted by, by the story. So again, nothing groundbreaking here. From what I remember about how the event developed, uh, before Mira passed away, I believe that video message thing was going to be just for the opening crowd like day one kind of thing. Am I misremembering that? No, 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 that's right. They basically okay. had um, a special preview, they called it. It's uh, the afternoon before the big opening. So it corresponds to, they did the same thing. On the, so the exhibition opened on uh, Friday, the, the 10th, and on the 9th, uh, basically special people, people affiliated with uh, Mira Sensei, uh, people from Hakusensha, the press, select press, were allowed into the venue early, so that's how they could get beautiful pictures of everything uh, empty. Uh, and they got to enjoy the exhibition like that. So, for example, uh, Suzumi Hirazawa went there. He even bought a Rakshas ring, which is pretty yeah. pretty neat. Uh, <laughs> you get the voice actress uh, that did Casca's uh, voice in the movies and the uh, 2016 series who posed with a little Casca Sprite from the coffin. All these guys uh, went there early, and so there was planned to have a special session with uh, hosted by the two voice actors for Guts and Casca, where that video would have been played. So at the time, I thought it might just be a short message, something maybe a few minutes, but uh, it might have been the interview and actually been uh, 15 to 20 minutes, and... You know, that would have been a pretty big reward. Exactly. That's the point I was going to make was that it was initially a smaller crowd intended and then they just opened it wide given the situation. Yeah. So keep in mind that as well. Anything else about the exhibition? I wanted to talk about the young animal for a little bit as well. No, I think we, we're done. I mean, what did you guys think of the pictures you saw? Uh, the official ones I was underwhelmed with because, you know, sometimes, and some of it, it just looked like, you know, they took prints of, you know, the artwork we're all so familiar with, you know, some of the color posters and illustrations and just put nice frames around them. 
but some of the the user pictures we got like from Letty gave you more of a sense of like oh wow look at you know these hallways and how it's laid out and the scale and just also seeing people observing it and it, it that was much more impressive and gave you a much you know gave me a much better feel for it I kind of agree with Griffith. I'm a little underwhelmed. I think it's mostly the way these a lot of these photographs are shot. They, they see a lot of wide shots uh, showing the arrangement of lots of different pictures. And I don't know. The effect is that everything looks very small, uh, particularly since often what's on display are statues or figures. Yeah. And so I, it's just hard to get a sense of the scale of everything because we're viewing it through the lens of someone you know, spending their own personal time to take pictures. And I, I understand that. So... Uh, either way, yeah, I wish I was there. I think being there, the presence of being there would be a lot different than the pictures we're getting. Uh, and of course, man, I would give anything to be there right now to see that. And also to be among other Berserk fans in this particular time, I think would be really memorable, independent of everything else on the, is on the wall. So I think it's important to consider that these are real real fans of Berserk that are coming to this event as well. So. Yeah, for sure. And the, the word I got from the exhibition is that the space... Uh, Aaron Mura's desk is where there's a lot of people crowding in. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to, yeah, yeah. to see the, the interview, to see his desk, to see what he had, the books he was reading, that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you, the guys, especially with the COVID situation in Japan, the people who are coming to the exhibition now are real fans. So, um, Grail and Gobolatula, what did you guys think of the, of the exhibition? Did you see, uh, any pictures of it? Yeah, we saw it on Twitter. Uh, just bits and pieces. Obviously, the Hirasawa stuff uh, with his new bling, I thought was awesome. Yeah, uh, we were looking at the dioramas earlier, which I thought were actually really impressive. Just because it was just stuff that we had never seen before, and I loved the Dragon Slayer setup. I thought that was so cool because it really puts you in <laughs> Goto's workshop. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't really get a good sense of what the actual actual exhibition looked like. It looked like it was very um, kind of conservatively lit with like little shots of light going to the pictures, which I thought was pretty nice. But uh, if I were there in person, I might trip all over myself and, and <laughs> fall over. But seeing the pictures, it, it gives you the sense that it was a very like, it really felt like an art gallery, which was cool. Oh, for sure. Like, I really love seeing the up-close original drawings from the manga. Um, Like, as was mentioning before, all of the different brushes you can see he used, and even, like, where they went off-page. And I was kind of struck by, like, the little snippets of text that they had to glue into the bubbles. It really kind of felt like, uh, like I was looking at a the source code from a game or something. It was like, oh, this is awesome. It really felt to me like it was like a, a work in progress, even though obviously the piece was done. It was yeah. like, wow. It, it made me realize how little I know about the traditional process of making manga, because even when I make comics for fun myself, I do it all digitally. And I'm sure a lot of mangaka make digital comics nowadays too. Yeah, I think, right. uh, I mean, the industry in Japan has pretty much all moved to digital. There might be like one or two holdouts like Mira was until five years ago, but most of them have all moved to digital because it's just much more convenient. Right. But yeah, back in the days, you had to glue the text. So the mangaka would write the text in pencil in the bubbles. Then they would uh, put the actual printed thing on, on top and lay it out like that. Right. And stuff 
Go ahead. I was just going to say stuff like screen tones, you know, yeah. are, are so manually done. It, I was shocked when I first learned about that years ago. Yeah. Like someone with an exacto knife and shit. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I mean, that's that's why you that's why they had assistants to do that because doing the screen tones is just it's not necessarily like a super high level job, but to do it well and to do interesting effects, it takes a lot of time. And I think I, I bet you some of the screen tones in Berserk before it went digital. Uh, Mira did them himself. The ones that were a bit complicated, you know, because he probably wanted to uh, get that done right. So I bet he even did a bunch of these himself just because it was so complex at the time. I mean, not complex, but it requires skill. Yeah. And he probably had a very specific idea on a lot of them where it's like, ah, I gotta do this myself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Some of them are very detailed. And just overall, I guess the feeling that I got from seeing some of these pieces and like the uh, manuscripts that you shared was just like uh, the, the sense that you can see the individual strokes of the ink pen yeah, um, must've been something really exciting to see in person. I, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Needless to say the format, I think it's B4. Uh, individual pages are B4 and the two page spreads are B3. And that's B3 uh, GIS, Japanese mm. uh, standard, because it's uh, bigger than the uh, international standards. They have their own B format for some reason. And it's yeah. bigger. So it's actually pretty, it's pretty big. Basically, it's twice bigger than what's in Young Animal. So if you've ever seen a Young Animal magazine, one page is twice bigger than one page in that magazine. When will we get those releases? <laughs> I want to get those volumes twice as big. I think I first saw a manuscript page in 2011 or 2012 during a promotional event for the movie. They'd held it up on one of those videos. And I was like, that is much bigger than I thought those pages were. And so it's nice to see them laid out here, particularly the selection that they made. Uh, some pretty smart choices, some really memorable two-page spreads, some really memorable moments. Even those that are single pages seem really thoughtfully made. Uh, that was one of the coolest parts to me as well. Yeah, those. and it should mm. be noted that uh, it basically you can do the exhibition in one hour if you rush it. But it takes a good two hours to actually uh, see oh, wow. everything, and we, you know, while taking your time a little bit. So it's uh, people should shouldn't get the idea it's a fifteen minutes affair. It's really a pretty big venue with lots of stuff to see. So if you wanna, if you're a fan and you wanna pay attention, uh, yeah, it's it's a like it's a real art exhibition. It's not right. just some bullshit thing. So I feel like uh, it's important to note it because it really pays homage to to Mira and. Um, they said, actually, interestingly, uh, one of the Young Animals managers said they actually had been talking about uh, doing that for five years uh, with wow. Um They, Yeah, the guy told him, well, the 30-year anniversary is coming. Maybe we should do something special. And, uh, and of course, Mira said well, was on board with that. So it's also, it's not something they just winged uh, randomly. Uh, it was a bit delayed, of course. In the end, it, it comes... Uh, two years after the the anniversary, but still, it's something they they had planned for for a long time. Wow! Well, yeah. I'm glad I'm glad everything came together at last. Yeah, and it's not over because they they do plan to uh, tour it uh, across Japan afterwards. Yeah, that's good news. Yeah, I hope that'll go to more places and last long enough to maybe lift the COVID restrictions so that more fans internationally can go give it a visit. That would yeah, be ideal. For sure. I certainly hope so. I'll yeah. 
we'll book our tickets. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, they'll open it up, except for Americans because of our vaccination record. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> no. Let us in. Let well, me in. As will send us pictures. He's like, got, you know, his like, you know, like vacation shirt on, like, all right. <laughs> Screw you guys! I'm going nevertheless. Yeah, I actually uh, I, I check the embassy website uh, every week to <laughs> to see if there's any news on on reopening. But yeah, oh, no man. dice so far. Yeah. So that's it for the exhibition, I suppose. Um, check out the the pictures online; they're all over the place. There were at least two official articles that I've seen. Uh, probably even more at this point. The day of there was... Oh, yeah. Was there's, um, say, about 10. Uh, there's okay. a few that are really nice. Uh, there's one from a site called Da Vinci News. Okay. Uh, I don't know why it's called that way. And the uh, URL is actually ddnavy.com, uh, I think. Uh, it's the one that did uh, the interview of Mura about Star Wars uh, oh, okay. some years ago. I don't know if you guys remember. I think it was... I do. I do remember yeah, um, that. And so, yeah, they did a pretty lengthy uh, article. Um, I, I thought it was pretty cool. That, that's the one I saw that uh, sticks with me. But, yeah, there's about, I don't know, 10, 12 maybe uh, websites oh, great. that I saw that covered. Go check it out if you haven't already. Um, at the same day, uh, it was times to the release of Young Animal, uh, which has episode 364 inside. But, of course, it's a special issue uh, with a new uh, insert. It's called Messages to Kentaro Mira. I believe I've only seen pictures of the outside of that. I don't think that was in the digital edition. That's the thing. None of us have laid hands on the young animal itself yet. Mine comes in like a couple days. Uh, but the digital edition was a little bit stripped down from that. But what's what's great about the digital the digital edition alone is it does have really good, high-quality images of color illustrations, color prints from volume covers and posters and some trading card stuff, I believe. Uh, that we've never seen in that format before, at least I have in a digital side. So it looks really pristinely reproduced uh, in those. So It's very nice, yeah. 29 uh, color pages, yeah. Uh, plus the, uh, the color illustrations at the beginning of the episode. And yeah, and in the digital edition, they actually stuck the messages to Kentaro Mura booklet at the, at the end of the magazine. So oh, that's what that is. Okay. Yeah, it's it's nice to it, it allows uh, people who just read it digitally to see uh, those uh, manga tributes by uh, so there's one by Wazarai, uh, who does Sestus and who was uh, Mira's first assistant. There's one by Nico Nicholson. There's a short one by Minochika. Uh, there's one by Aku, who is uh, Mori Koji's wife, and of course there's one by Mori himself, who was Mira's uh, friend for over forty years. And that one's, of course, uh, very hard-hitting in particular. It reflects on their friendship, on what Mira did for him. He basically saved his life. Um, and uh, we learn in it that uh, he, he plans to write a manga about their life uh, that will probably be up after he completes his current work uh, called Tiger of Genesis. Uh, it seems it was Mira's idea that he write a manga about their life. And it will probably be called MK after their shared uh, initials, Morikoji and Murakentaro. That tribute was really, really heartbreaking to look at. I, I can't read it, but... It was so surprising and, and, and just like a, a gut punch to see these reproductions of Miura's young life. Like, I definitely didn't expect to see that anytime ever, you know, to get a personal look at this person's life like that. I was just really shocked whenever I saw those pages. 
Yeah. yeah, and even showing the the funeral ceremony, it's also. I mean, yeah, seriously, the way it, it was starts. very, very shocking. Yeah, yeah. It made the whole thing all the more real. I feel like that was very generous of him because, as a as a big fan, you know, I mean, I couldn't be there, uh, and of course, I had no place being there with his friends and family. But still, uh, being able to just sit like that, uh, yeah, that did something for me. So yeah, I, I feel like that's really that was very generous of him. Yeah, that was the highlight of those editions for me. It was Koji's little comic. I think probably goes without saying. Yeah. But there's also a little poster. I don't really give a shit about the poster. Uh, they could have done better, is yeah. what I'll say about the little insert for the poster. Yeah, I, I do like the sides that's, that's got the uh, Guts and Zod illustration, but they added a yeah. weird uh, red gradient to it that, I don't know, I don't know why it is. That. I'd rather have preferred it untouched, you know, just black and white. It would have been perfect, but they added that, and it's not great. And the other side is just, I don't know, selected panels that I don't think, uh, as they do nothing for me. Yeah, kind of almost arbitrary among the big moments, but whatever. Who cares? Yeah. It's a little poster insert. They're not always a hit. Yeah. At the very end of this episode in The Young Animal that was released, there was a special note to all fans of Kentaro Miura. Uh, what was interesting about this is that it was printed in English in addition to the Japanese, which is kind of unprecedented. Uh, they haven't done that before. It's an editorial message to readers. And uh, among the other things it shares is that it says... Episode 364 was able to be finished because of the manuscript that Miura left behind and the support of Studio Gaga. So it's incredible that we even got this episode to begin with, given the circumstances. So it's a really a gift. It ends by saying that there is no information about the future of Berserk as a series, but the young animal, the publisher, will always uh, have the first priority being on what Miura would do if he were still with us. I thought that was very generous of them to offer that in English uh, not something they would uh, have ever done in the past. So it's really a tip of the hat to all the international fans of Berserk out there. Um, the last thing I'll say is, I think I said it before, but I'll just to remind everyone that Volume 41 is coming in December. I believe it's December 24th, so right at the end of the year, a little Christmas present for everybody, uh, which will also include, of course, up to, up to 364. And that will be all for Berserk, because the episode ends with it saying the end, or the, it says end, Owari. No holdouts for 365. Uh, speaking of which, I believe that's a good opportunity to turn to the main event, which is, of course, episode 364. The boy is quickly introduced to the group, and Shirke realizes that her assumption was wrong, that he's not Danan in disguise, but he's a unique child who even Danan and the gurus are curious about. Casca recognizes him, and they spend the night and the next day together. Meanwhile, Guts trains without the armor, realizing that his senses are continuing to deteriorate. The boy visits him, and they have a mock sword fight before Guts hands the kid back over to the group. That night, Casca realizes that, as Elaine, she knew the boy even before the beach, then realizes that he is the demon child who kept her alive during the chaotic start of the incarnation ceremony. She wakes, sees the boy isn't there, and rushes outside just as he is transforming into Griffith. And it ends with saying, Owari, which means end. Just to really briefly have lots to say, obviously, I'm sure everyone does. Uh, I think it's a very generous episode uh, for a mystery of the series that has lasted for almost 20 years. I think it's, it's an incredible coincidence. Yeah, that Mira has teased this, as we know, for a long, long, long time. And this is the episode where he really lifts the veil on twofold. First, 
that the Moonlight Child was the demon child, right? But also that he shares a body with Griffith. Both of which things that... And Casca knows, too. So that's another revelation exactly. mm-hmm. here that Casca already knows. And that it's being revealed to Guts as well. Guts and Griffith uh, and Casca all there on the final pages. Huge reveal for the series, even if it wasn't the final episode of the series. It's a, a milestone episode, period. Especially if it wasn't the final episode, because I'm sure there'd be a lot more mm-hmm. uh, in the pre uh, the coming pages or what would have been the coming pages. So that's it. That's my summary. That's my initial impressions. Uh, what do you guys think overall? I think aside from that, this was also very generous in the sense that like I'm thinking of it. I can't help but think of it. You know, this is obviously the first and uh, presumably only posthumous release of Berserk. And that it fills a lot, of, it checks a lot of boxes for me. Just getting to see them interact with the child like this, basically for the child to get its own episode. Totally, sort of like, a whole episode about the boy. Yes, this was this was something that was missing, you know, among hundreds of things that are going to go end up missing. But this was something that was a very, you know, the fate, you know, was very generous to give us this. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, that we were able to get to see this, that we were able to get to see the boy running with laundry and Casca chasing him and, you know, just all these sort of beautiful, you know, images of them hugging and being together. So that, that was really incredible to get in addition to just the revelation with Griffith, the confirmation there, the fact that Casca knows, you know, her son essentially is alive, you know, all of that, you know, that would have presumably been expanded on. It's just great that we were able to get this in this episode and, uh, and the finale, of course, is also just another fantastic, emotional, and kind of strangely apropos for the whole thing, like, you know, outside of the series. Just to, to say it, that, that Griffith had a tear in his eyes at the ending of the series. Yeah, it ends with a tear in Griffith's eye, and also it's like, yeah, I think we all have tears in our eyes for different reasons, you know? <laughs> Thematically, as a fan, it's so surreal to read this episode and see some of the things that are happening, because... Uh, you know, the way that it unfolded feels weirdly how it feels to be a fan right now, even though it was totally unintentional. Yes. With the peaceful kind of reflective atmosphere, getting to savor time with your friends and time with your family. It's so strange. And then the, yeah. And yeah, the sums, you know, and then it's gone. Yeah. And knowing that that time, as I was sitting there with God reading the episode, I knew that that time was limited to yeah. savor with the characters of Berserk reading it for the first time, for the last time, and knowing that this is the last new episode of Berserk I'll ever read. It was so bizarre to mm-hmm. feel that sense of peace and that sense of closure in a weird way, watching the characters have a fun time together and just that little slice of life moment. It was uh, really uh, touching and even though it was completely unintentional in the weight that it had for me, it was uh, really, really uh, bittersweet. Mm. Yeah, it was an absolute gift. Um, and yeah, I'd like to echo it, those sentiments by saying that um, it, was, it was fitting. It was a, a fitting, um, unintentional end, I think. All good things must come to an end, that sort of... Uh, feeling I was getting. It gave us, like, it's kind of touched on all these sort of important 
you know, with the with the three or four main principles here, you know, if not resolving anything, it does touch on a bunch of themes that you would have wanted to touch on before the series ended. You know, it basically is just missing the sword fights, you know, and whatnot, you know, and all that that would have had to come. So uh, from a character standpoint, very, very satisfying that we were even able to get like a dusting of this sort of material, you know, I mean, yeah, that that's incredible. Right. Well, I'm gonna be dissonant here, but I think the biggest deal of this episode is the fact uh, William the boys got an affinity with elves, and that his art is uh, strangely similar to them, which uh, Dan can feel. I think it's a big clue about his true nature and uh, what would have been his store for the future if uh, the story had continued. And to me, that's really a big reveal because obviously the. Uh, the transformation which Guts and Casca witness is a is, is oh, a big as moment. You would even say this wasn't a reveal at all. <laughs> this was a, you know this was a, yeah, <laughs> okay maybe this confirmed it for some people, but no yeah, but no you're absolutely right that this episode had so much in it like it had like at least half a dozen revelations like little ones big ones you know like you said about the boy and the potential of that you know in his nature mm. and especially the interest. You know, uh, Gedflin and Dannon were showing in him when they were making those comments. Yeah, uh, for sure. And um, I forgot what I was about to say, but uh, regarding Casca, you said she, she knows it's uh, her child is alive. But actually, what interests me here is uh, I think she remembers she had a child because before that, uh, she her memories uh, shortly before and shortly after the big moment, the eclipse were missing and vague and fuzzy. And so she did not, she was not conscious of the boy's existence. And so this serves as a kind of double whammy for them, for her, because she gets to see this boy. She sees that it feels so familiar to be with him. Uh, it's like, you know, it's like a family. It's like a real family. Like, uh, you know, they clearly love each other, but they don't know why. Yeah, even, exactly. Even Guts, you know, even Guts, who has no time for this crap, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. he's like having a little sword fight and, you know, like looking at him, you know, lovingly and patting him on the head just because it feels right. Yeah, they're drawn to each other. Yeah. Are you saying uh, that panel of Casca realizing, is that her realizing that she is a mother? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's I think all think coming. Okay. And if, if, if all the details weren't filled in, you have everyone there with the pieces, Skull Knight, Dan and... You know, I thought it was going to actually be less organic than this. But yeah, I do think it does seem like a lightning strike moment where it's like, as said, a double whammy where it's all rushing. You know, you see it in her eyes, you know, when she wakes up, it's like everything. In typical Mira style, something big like this is communicated wordlessly yeah. almost. Yeah, I think it's uh, the way that Mira does a reveal is pretty great because she spends that day that first night, then the day, then as she's lying uh, asleep, she thinks to herself uh, about, you know, what she remembers. And then she's, she gets that, we get that glorious shot uh, reproduced from the, the conviction arc. And, um, and yeah, I think it's uh, what, that's what's powerful is one picture shows actually two things. She knows a boy is uh, the demon child and she, of course, remembers the demon child existed and knows that it's her son. And that's why she yeah. wakes up in a hurry, gets down mm -hmm. the stairs, and then she gets an even bigger reveal that the boy is also Griffiths. Oh, my God. This is the one downside to this as, you know, it's this is great thematically, characterization, getting all this in. 
but as an ending for as an ending point for guts and casca for things to cut off not the best not where you would want that you know not the last thing you want to see for them is uh, the downside i would say I couldn't help but think about Guts' reaction next, because particularly the way that Griffith talks about his experiences having felt the feelings of the boy because they share the body. I imagine that Guts, being who Guts is, he might feel a moment of betrayal. He would think it was all fake, I think. Exactly. that it is, The whole thing was a ruse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is really difficult to... Uh, just think about it as a reader, as a you know, big you know, supporter of Guts. I don't want him to have to go through that kind of uh, difficulty, knowing that the truth is so much different and so much more meaningful, that this child has suffered its entire existence and even its pre-existence through all the things. It in, in a way, it endured the eclipse as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the other survivor. I think it would be even worse uh, if we had gotten the next episode, because I think as Guts... Would oh swing God. his sword, uh, just like we saw in the uh, exhibition's banner image. You know, swinging his sword at Griffiths like that in anger, thinking he's been betrayed. Casca would have yelled for him to stop, because right. she yeah. knew something he did not, and so he would remember all the times he saw her rush toward Griffiths when he was just when Femto was just incarnated. He saw Griffiths and Casca was driven towards him, then uh, on the Hill of Swords, and he would feel an even bigger betrayal. So for God, it's really like the lowest of the lowest moment, of course, before learning the truth. Well, I, th- I wonder if he would, how long it would take him to accept it, because of course he'd have Casca to explain, he'd have Skull Knight to... I think Griffith would probably say some shit right off the top, you know, either before or after Guts takes a swing at him, where he'd basically say the quiet part from the Hill of Swords out loud... That, yeah, this child is my vessel, blah, blah, blah. And Guts wouldn't yeah. believe it, but he'd have confirmation from trust of more trusting sources. But, you know, he'd probably still have questions about, can I trust this child and what it is? And, you know, it's obviously a fucked up situation beyond all normal comprehension. I think Danan could explain it. I think the Skull Knight would probably say something like, told ya it would uh, bring it's you trouble, this boy. but you should kill it. Should have killed it back then, like I said. Told you. Uh, that's, that's another question I had, actually, is where's the Skull Knight in all of this? Because he conspicuously absent. He's, he's in a tree right above Griffith. Yeah. He's hiding in the bushes. <laughs> no, he's, he's making out of the grave right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I do think uh, he's up in the branches and about to drop down with uh, <laughs> to try to hit Griffiths fr- in the back, <laughs> make sure he yeah. go- he gets him that time. Uh, but yeah, I do think well that's a, another um, question uh, basically because we we went over the rest of the episode a bit quickly. But yeah, yeah, I, we'll I, get there. I do think uh, I do think the skull light is not far and. It's an interesting situation because when you when you see uh, Griffith's final lines, so of course that reveals great when Guts hears a voice and he understands immediately. Uh, he says, "I dreamed," you know. So it starts with "you may." Obviously, I mean that's the word in Berserk that's associated with uh, Griffiths. Obviously, even though we get uh, talk of dreams and flaw and stuff in this in this one, but uh, in that series, "you may" is something very closely associated with Griffiths. So thematically, you got that. He said he dreamed of becoming a child during a full moon night. He was cradled in the warmth that he had missed. So obviously, I mean, those are the feelings of the boy he's talking about. He, he's cradled in the arms of his parents. Is what he yearns for desperately. And then he says that 
However, when he wakes up from the dream, only a faint feeling of desolation remains, and that even that disappears immediately with the streak of a tear, like morning dew. It's a, it's the tear of the boy, and that's, yeah, and Griffith, you mm-hmm. know, his face has really, you know, he's actually got nothing on it. He looks, you know, he's probably getting ready to, uh, yeah, do something not nice. He's yeah, gonna, yeah, he's gonna do something not nice or twist the knife with his words, you know. Uh, yeah. Whatever else he does, because he's femto, and but it's great though now the writing. If you want to, if you want to live a deluded life, <laughs> you know you can be like Griffith wanted to see his old friends again. You know, oh, it's gosh. Like, you know, it, well, and that's intentionally written that way, but it obviously doesn't. You know, it's it would be revealed pretty quickly, either immediately or as things went on. Like no, that's that's obviously not what was happening. I saw chatter about that in the thread. I don't know how anyone can can actually believe that, though, because the whole point of this scene, even the final line, is that those feelings fade once he asserts his control, meaning they're not his feelings. Right. I was going to ask, is this the first time we get any insight to, you know, Griffith's experience when the boy is in charge? So that that was pretty revelatory as well. Yeah. Yeah, Him describing it as a dream is new information to us. We... I mean, since uh, Femto was incarnated, we, we got very, very little of Griffith's uh, internal that's, uh, that's monologue. That's an amazing coincidence that we, were, that we got all this here. And so uh, the thing is, yeah, I think to, to get back to what uh, Griff was saying here, I, I think the one line that I think makes it really clear that uh, it's a boy uh, we're talking about here and his emotions is when he talks about being cradled in the warmth that he had missed uh, and he really means being in someone's arms here. And so, I mean, if you if you think back to the character Griffiths was, uh, even during the Golden Age arc, he wasn't much for uh, carnal comfort, right? Uh, except with Ganon, I guess. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just not the kind of character he was. So uh, when you look at, at it from that perspective, I do think it's meant to show uh, Femto is basically knocking the, the boy back in the basement. I think you guys are talking about it being intentionally unclear about what exactly is happening. Like t- to me, I see that tear on Griffith's face, and I don't see it as anything confusing. I see it as kind of like a yeah. a violation of the genuine emotions of the kid. And, you know, the kid's sadness is manifested in the tear, and Griffith is wearing it on his cold face, and that alone is a very striking image or idea. And yeah, to me, yeah. that's that's all that's it's meant to be that way. I agree. I think. What I meant is that when it first uh, goes, you know, when the transformation occurs first, uh, there's a moment where superficially uh, there might be a superficial confusion. You know what I mean? Or not ah, even, the opening line. Yeah, yeah. Not, not even confusion, but uh, how to say, uh, a mirroring thematically of uh, the fact mm. you know, Griffiths was lost and, you know, and what was going on with the boy. But yeah, I, I don't think there's any actual ambiguity when you read the scene of what's going on here. And obviously the boy is being violated, like you said. I do like that before the transformation even completes, as soon as the line begins about the dream, you know, Guts knows. There's a shot of his eyes close up. When he recognizes either the voice or what he's saying, uh, I think it's the voice is what's happening before the the hair has completed its full thing. Uh, It's just a shocking moment for Guts. You know, I thought that was nice to capture just with the one line, Guts knows something is up. Yeah, it was. It, it's incredible to watch because it's like it, it reminded me of the Hill of Swords in a way where he just couldn't react and how he was reflecting about when when Griffith was incarnated into that body. Like 
it was almost like the old days, like he was just reacting on instinct and his he he was just like totally overwhelmed. I thought that was so interesting because yeah. it was happening again, it almost. To get back to the elf stuff. Yeah. I do think there's a like that's something that's really new, like I said earlier. It's a fact before we knew the boy did not make the brain bleed. We knew he had powers, but he was not evil. He was innocent. But now we get the confirmation is beyond that. He's actually close to elves. Uh, so much so that they naturally have an affinity with him. They, they like him. We see that they, he basically directs them and they play with him, that kind of stuff. So I also think that would have been a big uh, clue to the what would have come between him and Femto. And it goes back to the, to the egg of the... Of the perfect world, right? Uh, when he mm-hmm. absorbed the, the demon child, he told him that within, uh, he, he could dream within the cradle of the new world he was fashioning. And, uh, I think that's, that's actually going to, or that would have, uh, played a big role. The fact the boy dreamed and managed to also reinvent himself as Femto was incarnated. And I, I'm, I would have been curious to see how that duality, which is literally between good and evil, would have come into play. Because it's really, I mean, you've got on one side the boy that's all good, and on one side Femto that's all evil. And uh, while Femto is uh, like a parasite in that body and controls it most of the time, so it would have been really interesting to see how it would have come into play. Just to put a finer point on what you were saying as, if I'm understanding you correctly, is it that the egg... Uh, the Beherit Apostle somehow determined the nature of the boy, or do you think it's more complicated? Than no, that? I, I think uh, when he took him in, he has that line, and it's just like, well, at least you're dying, but at least in the world I'm making, uh, you, you you can dream of, an, of a better life, basically. Yeah. And so at the right. time, you're just like, eh, yeah, whatever, sure. And and uh, we see that the, the child is transformed, and Griffiths is, uh, is, you know, how to say, created. As Femto comes into the world, then we right. see on the Hill of Swords that uh, something of the boy remains. He's not completely gone. Then later on in uh, Volume 28, we see that, uh, well, the, the boy in the moonlight comes. And so that's its own entity. And mm-hmm. so the question is, well, uh, how did it come to be? Uh, originally, we thought Femto just took over, but actually it's more complex than that. And I guess... Uh, in a sense, I, my answer to you is yes, it's complex. Is How exactly did this come to be? Uh, did did the, the, the child manage to recreate itself as well in that process within the Beherit Apostle and accept instead of uh, doing it for evil, he did it for good? You know, we, we don't have the answers, mm-hmm. but uh, I find that duality interesting. And I think this episode specifically uh, underlines that aspect, that the boy is harmless, he's good, that's why he right. could come to the island, because he's not a threat. He feels at ease here. He feels natural. And then we get that reveal with Griffiths. And Griffiths is the incarnation of evil, basically. He's uh, Femto, the main bad guy. So how could they coexist? And how would that come to, co- to, to play uh, later on? Well, yeah, we don't know. That's really interesting. Uh, it touches on another thing. You were mentioning he had no ill will, and so that allowed him to come to the island. They also talked about the the island's fit, the fate of the island right, with right. regards to Shirke, Casca, and Farnese. And 
I thought that was really interesting because that felt sort of like a new concept that they oh, were yeah. introducing that would factor in later. And uh, was yeah. wondering what you guys thought about that. That's a that's a specific word in Japanese. It's not so much fate as a, more of a fated connection. That's how Puella okay. puts it. Uh, it's a fact. What's what say ties people together, like uh, you know, a fateful meeting with somebody uh, in a train station mm-hmm. or something like that. It's more like that, and so it means. Yeah, it's interesting what Danan says. The fact that uh, the island seems to have accepted uh, Casca, Farnes, and Shiruke, uh, each for different reasons. Shiruke, because she's a magic user. Farnese, she's wearing uh, Danan's old clothes. Casca, she's made the uh, elf uh, hunting uh, garb uh, her own, that kind of stuff. So it's also so interesting. And yeah, like you said, something we would have gotten more of but we don't quite know how. I don't know, Walter and Griff, what do you guys think? I think it's interesting that it draws attention to the island as a conscious thing or something that has uh, affinity for others in a much the way that, you know, the elementals themselves have developed an affinity for their wearers or their owners like Serpico and the cloak and the silk sword and all that. Uh, it kind of reminded me of that. And it made me wonder what is so special about the island that that, that would be a thing um, but I don't know. That's about as much as I've spent time on it. Cause it's a term that I didn't learn until this morning, basically. So, uh, right. yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And to fade it, I think it's in or Inishi is the, is the term. And yeah. And it's just someone who's, you know, meant to be together basically. I see. That's helpful to know. Yeah. And yes, this translation is fresh off the presses courtesy of Puella. So big shout out to her for yeah, absolutely. helping with that. Yeah. I think it's interesting because also in addition to that scene where um, Denon is explaining, you know, why the boy was accepted beyond the barriers of the island, uh, there's this little small moment, and this is me reading into it, where Shirke says that we were accepted. Uh, that was meaningful to me because Shirke, someone who was very uncomfortable uh, being out in the human world and finding her a place in the world that really meant mattered to her. You know, there was a time when she was very homesick and, and she found this place surrounded by magicians and she found a way to you know, find a place that was hers, a, a place that would accept her for who she is uh, out in the otherwise very foreign human world. So I think that meant a lot to her to be accepted. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that aspect. I thought it was interesting that they specifically called out Shirke, Casca, and Farnese as being accepted by the island and not the other members yeah, of the group. I, agree. <laughs> I was like, ooh, well, that's awkward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're not members of the special elf club. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe the uh, the Vacans have accepted Isidro because we see him sparring with them. I don't know right. how much their uh, feelings have sway over the island, though. Right. Guts and Azan are going to go leave down in the cave yeah. with the dwarves. Everybody gets their <laughs> elemental affinities down and just sort of hangs out. What what happens to Magnifico then? Does it, I don't know. Does he stay in jail? He, <laughs> has, his to. Affinity? he has to serve his time. Forever. So that's a way of it being accepted. They've accepted his conviction. He, he's a brownie now. There's another <laughs> thing that Danon says about the time distortion of the island that really upends many of our thoughts about what time, what, what happened with time. Uh, when that concept is introduced bay back on two, 343, I think it is, when they first land, it's Esma's mom that says to, to be on this island is basically to separate yourself from the outside world. And Shirke recalls this tale of Pekaf. And his tale is, of course, that he stumbled into elves. And when he emerged, it had been a long time had passed. And, you know, he lived a lonely life as a result, basically. And so our setup for what that means is that t- a lot of time would pass. 
And then we learned in this episode through Danon that, oh, yeah, full moon, you could, many days can pass here on the outside. It's just one full moon. So that's the opposite. So it's kind of like a very topsy-turvy, who knows what will happen on the other end of I'll, things. I'll just note that at the time I said that, and especially in the forum, I repeated it many times, people shouldn't expect something like just linearly time passes faster. I remember people were speculating maybe one day equals one month. And that never seemed too realistic to me because obviously if they would be spending like many days there, maybe even, you know, weeks, months. Uh, and also like just thinking, well, time just goes faster. It's kind of easy and, and cheap and it's, not necessarily... It's convenient. Yeah, it's, but it's also not very interesting. And if you'll note... Uh, Isma's mom, she never says anything about time uh, actually going slower on the island. It's just Shiroke who tells us that story because mm -hmm. that's what it reminds yeah. her of. But Isma's mom never says that. She just says time flows differently and that if you stay on the island too long, you'll be cut off from the rest of the world. And so... To me, I mean, I know some people were like, well, that's strange. It goes against what we were told before. Not really, actually, to me. And it's not a contradiction. Yeah. It's more that it subverts the easy explanation that Shirke kind of delivered to readers. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think it makes sense that, for example, it could be every full moon lasts a few days on the island. Uh, but, for example, I don't know, every equinox, you jump 10 years in time. You know, something, something mm. crazy like that. It could be at times it's slower, at times it's faster. And if you think about uh, time paradox stories and stuff like that, you often get stuff where time goes slower in a direction, faster there, you know, places like this. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it, um, it made sense to me. It didn't, didn't bother me at all. Uh, just kind of jumping around, a couple things I wanted to mention was, I think it's interesting and it's obvious and pragmatic that Guts is all alone here on the island. He's training by himself away from the group. Of course, we've known that's been the case since 355 when Casca screamed and Guts was forced to be away from the group, but he sure is spending a lot more time alone. You know, every time we see him, he's basically alone <clears> or <throat> trying to be alone. Uh, and, and that just made me think about the future for, for them and, and how, A, how they're going to resolve this situa situation with Guts and Casca, but also wondering if Mira is setting up this precedent for Guts to be alone or separated from the others. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a good question about what's next. Whether he would have struck out alone, uh, I think not, right now it makes sense because he's letting Casca enjoy uh, company, uh, the others, and everything, and he's basically uh, sacrificing himself for for her own good uh, in this case. And of course, it provides her with interesting opportunities to seeing try, see him train alone and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's a um, it's a good uh, it's a good question. Would he have struck out alone uh, like back in the old days uh, going forward? Who knows? I mean, that's more of a speculation for what could have been next, right? Mm -hmm. Of course. But uh, I, I I do like the idea of him. I don't know jumping in after Griffiths and getting lost in Fantasia alone, and maybe with Puck, you know, back back to the mm -hmm. original duo, and then the rest of the group would have scrambled to uh, be able to find him and rejoin with him that, that would have been interesting but hard to say it's not there's also it's not perfect right so mm -hmm. um yeah it's it's a good thing to ponder we we've uh, i know we speculated before about maybe the group splitting up that's also yep. a part of that um 
Again, compelling idea, not perfect. I could see uh, a case for and a case against. In the chat, right before this episode landed, we were talking about, are there cats in Berserk? And <laughs> someone had found, many people kind of, you know, contributed different panels of cats. I think we ended up with like four cats. But like, yeah, the one of the scenes that came up in discussion there was the Vertanis sequence uh, where Isidro is looking for Shirke. And it's really just one page, but you get these little vignettes of things that are happening around town, giving kind of slice of life stuff. And that little scene has always stood in the back of my mind. It's just really powerfully setting up a scene and a feeling or an atmosphere of a place. And I had always kind of secretly wished for that. I probably even said so in the podcast. I want to see this group on this fantastic island doing some just normal stuff. And Aziel was making fun of me for complaining about that a couple episodes ago. And and we got it. We got it you here. You got it. Right in the there last minute here. We got this little um, adorable. I told you it was coming. Mm-hmm. You did. You reassured me, but it was, I'm impatient. <laughs> and we got these beautiful little scenes of the boy. And in addition to the antics of the boy, what I really appreciated as a parent was watching uh, Casca really kind of like chasing close by with a boy, looking kind of fretting, looking nervous at every little thing he did, even though he's just playing. Very, very true to life. Um, little moment with her. Uh, one other thing regarding parentage is when Guts uh, delivers the boy to the group, he does this little trick where the boy was on his shoulders and he flips him over really kind of like dangerously. Yeah. That's 100% like a parent thing. Like you get a whole, you get a feel for the weight of a kid and you can make them do cool things like flips. Guts stuff, just so. fast forwarded in the parenting course. Exactly. To the That's a pro dad move when you're doing that. <laughs> but it is definitely doable. Guts for- is built to be someone's dad. Oh, that was so nice seeing him sword fighting with his kid. That was such a treat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not a detail that I call in my first reading because I'm looking at these scans from uh, Hakusensha and I'm looking at two pages at once. And Azil had pointed that out to me. Yeah, same here. Actually, I completely missed the sword fighting. That's so cool because uh, I couldn't read Japanese. He's even saying "hurrah, hurrah!" like he's you know mock fighting him. Yeah, the, the boy wants to play at being a knight like dad. That's why he's got the armor on and. Uh, it's the second time that the boy has expressed interest in the armor. That's the only thing that stuck out to me about that. I know someone was asking, is there any special significance about the boy wearing the armor? But in volume 28, when we first see him, you know, he seemed to like crawl up on dad and it looks like he's either looking at dad or peering into the armor. Uh, and I've always kind of in the back of my head wondered, does the boy notice or sense something special about the armor? And that's why he's attracted to it or interested in it. Uh, and here we see him wearing it and trying to cr- making it run away from, from Guts, basically. Is the kid trying to separate Guts from the armor and, and for some reason? Ooh. Oh. Personally, I don't think so. I think in this case, he's really just... He wants to play. It's I think he cute. was just wearing his dad's shoes. Yeah. Okay. You know, there was an interesting shot in the beginning of the episode where he was clutching onto the cape, and it kind of reminded me of when... I think Shirke was doing something similar, and then Guts's helmet activated, and Shirke got sucked into Guts's mind, as we know. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. There's a lot of action up that cape. Like, it's where the, yeah. you see the mm-hmm. beast swim up and bite <laughs> over his head. Shirke mm-hmm. was, of course, on his back that one time in astral form. And that's also, this isn't the first time the boys climbed up it either. He did it in the, when they were in the little uh, cabin. Mm-hmm. on the beach so it was interesting to see him climb up that way again and i mean i do think there uh, it's interesting anyway that yeah he does have that fascination with the armor and in this case you know tries to run off with it because obviously preceding guts was just contemplating how the armor is harming him 
So it does bring that to mind, you know, some idea that like if the boy is, you know, senses that the arm is bad, it, it's <laughs> yeah. just an interesting thing. Yeah. It's also neat that opening page where the boy sees Guts and then does this little sidestep move uh, to get around to Guts to, to behind him really quickly. I was like, is he using supernatural powers to get around Guts? But it's, it's such a small little moment. I don't really know. It could just be the kid being a kid. I think he just wants to climb on his back. And uh, it's the first thing he did also, uh, not the first thing, but on the beach, he also tried that when they were in the cabin. Uh, mm-hmm. Gus noticed something as a kid was climbing on his back. So I think he just likes to be on top of his dad's shoulders. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to see my... Have I hit everything that I well, have to say? It's We actually see Gus. So he's training in the waterfall. And mm. he drops the Dragon Slayer. He lets go of it because of the nerve damage brought on by the armor. Uh, he's taking a huge toll on him. Uh, we've seen before that he had his senses were getting uh, disturbed and the Skull Knight had warned him. He also tries to hit a target with his uh, throwing knife and he misses it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet his thoughts are actually leading him to become more dependent on the armor. He's like, well, I guess maybe I should use it some more. I can't, uh, I can't do it without it. Oh, man. He's really not on the right path in you that regard, right? St- you know, he's, you see his vision of, like, the fruit he's throwing at, and it's, like, really blurry and terrible. And mm-hmm. It's an interesting... Yeah, not only does he need it to fight with his body from the damage it had before, but now it's basically he can't live without it. So it's a, it's a sad little path, like you said, he's going the wrong way. Yeah. Seeing Guts lose hold of the Dragon Slayer is a really powerful thing uh, like that. He's just training and he can't even hold it. That's just a... Mm. Yeah, that sword is his bread and butter. And to think that he would mm. lose his grip on it is really scary. It's like the core of their group, really. The Dragon right. Slayer, you know? It's what gives the whole group their staying power, their strength. It's how we... You know, everything. It's everything. And also Guts is uh, the character that gets slammed into a pillar, you know, bro- broken pillar, g- gets through a wall of stone and still doesn't let go of his sword even when he's unconscious. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the fact uh, he can't hold hold it anymore is a, is a huge deal to me. I think it's really meant to be shocking to the reader. And if you'll think back to uh, what we discussed uh, when we saw Hanar uh, talk about the armor... At the time, I think I was saying that even then, even seeing the Skull Knights or Geyseric's death, rather, he's still not convinced that there's a problem. Like, he's still going to wear the armor, even at that time. So, mm-hmm. I do think, uh, I think at the time I said, I think there was one last big deal where he would just have no choice but to say, okay, I can't just go on like this. And I think this was also, how to say, a stepping stone towards that moment. And maybe that moment would have been trying to fight Griffiths and just being smacked into the ground or something. But in any case, I think at some point he would have been forced to say, okay, I I just can't. I have to do something. Yeah. And we know how hard that would be for Guts. Yeah. He doesn't do that easily. Like, he doesn't let people help him uh, easily. He doesn't let go of things. So, yeah. I got a a couple more things I wanted to say, if that's okay with you guys. Go for it. The first is uh, that Danan says she was informed of their journey step by step by Flora through prophecies delivered in dreams. So that was kind of a big deal to me because it means Flora followed Shiuke's travels even after her death. Uh, Mm -hmm. Real guardian angel in a way. And uh, in ancient Greece, 
one might have said uh, a diamond. So just pointing that out. I have a question mm -hmm. about that. Because she mentioned that she was told of the journey by Flora there, but she mentions later, I also had heard of the boy, but was it clear in the original that she's also talking about from dreams from Flora, or could Skull Knight have also been contacting her? Even though it seemed like they just met again, those pages. Yeah. I just don't know if it was clear that it was all from Flora. Well, yeah, that's my understanding, is that Flora uh, gave her, a, like I said, a step-by-step. -step. I mean, that's maybe the going a bit far, but... Yeah, she she like gave her several prophecies uh, through several dreams where she told them about uh, she told her about the journeys they were going through, so including about the boy. So yeah, I just thought that was that was pretty interesting, and it's also when you think back about uh, Flora telling Shuki she'll see her again in her dreams, then during um, the nightmare, Casca's nightmare, Flora showed up, and she had that line, and I I feel like this could also foreshadows that maybe Shuriken and Flora would come into contact again uh, in the future. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that was interesting. And also pretty cool that Flora had that role. For a long time, you know, she wasn't present, not even in the background. She was just that old woman who died and became a, a flame wall. And uh, now she's back. She's so, like yeah. a regular force ghost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like with the dream, they were, uh, you know, there was that kind of that teasing of, of Flora coming back in some way. So, yeah, that would have been cool to see. And uh, and the last thing I wanted to point out is uh, the great stuff at the beginning, the humor between Shirke, Sidro, and Isma. Uh, oh, yeah. When Shirke very assuredly tells them it's Danan, the boy's Danan, only to be proven wrong immediately and made fun of both by. I mean, nicely by Isma in her, her countryside ways and more, how to say, still nicely, but more uh, cynically by, by Isidro. And mm -hmm. uh, I also found Puck's antics hilarious because he basically accused Danan uh, to be a middle-aged woman that's trying to associate with young people and going <laughs> so, so far as disguised as a young boy. And he immediately gets caught red-handed uh, and he gets Flora stormed. That's what that's doing. But, of course. Yeah, that, yeah. I didn't make the connection with the name and what she's doing. That's pretty funny. And, yeah. She got him. He calls her Obachan, basically. And uh, <laughs> and Dana arrives and says, who's Obachan? And, and he just gets <laughs> swept up yeah. by that tornado of cherry blossoms. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. That was just amazing. I thought that was really cute. Yeah, it is nice uh, that Mira also nipped that one in the bud because that had been brought up by many, many people you know, you guys at Skullnet.net have one interpretation of what about the boy is, but I think I should believe what Mira told us through Shirke. And we're like, well, you know, Shirke could be just straight up wrong about this. And <laughs> what she says doesn't make a lot of sense. But there were there were many people that clung to that. And I'm sorry to say, people, it's it's over. It's over. It's a, it's a good lesson in uh, dramatic irony and unreliable narrators. You yeah. know what? It's, it is a really great thing that this was confirmed because, yeah, it would have been the never ending. Well, <laughs> you can't prove it. And, uh, you know, the series is over. Plus, Shirke said, because it is actually kind of rare, I feel like, that Mira mm -hmm. ever has is. any misinformation. Usually it's all building blocks that will eventually do one thing. So this is almost kind of experimental on his part, that he had such a knowledgeable character be, you know, so explicitly wrong. I think it's sort of function, though. The, the function is that it, it's, it serves as a red herring Definitely. so that people don't immediately piece it together right, right. I think you it know, was, too yeah, quickly. a cute way for him to, like, hey, here's a diversion, you know, like, because, mm -hmm. you know... Those guys at SKNet, they're, they're on to me. <laughs> they saw the grassy knolls odd. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
I, I agree. And uh, even though, like, by, by the time she actually made that comment, any reader that's careful would have known that the boy was, yeah. <laughs> As read that comment that she made, it was like, oh, horse shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, I think it also serves a purpose for her character itself because she's kind of shown to be the know-it-all. She's a little girl and she's got things she can't, she can't do and stuff, but... <clears throat> She does tend to know about everything. And, you know, she's really like the top of the class, uh, perfect student, the kind you just uh, love to hate. And, um, and yeah, she's wrong. She gets it wrong this, at least this one time. And so, I don't know, I feel that's just great to show right. that, yeah, she knows a lot, but she's not perfect. It's also that the boy himself is extremely unique, as Dan even says. And what Shurke knows about the rest of the world is through books. So it makes sense, right, that... If her knowledge of the world is constrained to what's written down in the pages, she's not going to be able to recognize something that's wholly unique like the boy. So it, it makes sense. Even uh, Dan and Ged Flynn don't know quite what to make of him. So it's Yeah, it's, I was yeah. so surprised. Yeah. That was something I talked about a lot in the past was I thought it would be weird if Dan didn't at least have an inkling about the boy. But here, her and the gurus are both baffled. Like, ah, they didn't know what to expect exactly, but they, they recognize the affinity between the boy and the elves. And that's kind of their conclusion. Um, so, yeah, shocking a little bit to me that these mm. otherwise super knowledgeable, super powerful people in the Berserk universe are also left in the dark. Well, it's a reminder that uh, what's going on with Griffiths is very unique. Uh, Femto, mm-hmm. obviously, ultra-powerful being, uh, the incarnation uh, once in a thousand years event, uh, which doesn't mean it happened before. It means something of that magnitude can only happen once in a thousand years. So, huge deal. And of course, a boy, like, something, you know, there's something I, I speculated uh, a while back, maybe years back now, about how there could be a kind of a countercurrent to causality with elves mm-hmm. and stuff. And like, on one side, you've got the Eater of Evil, who's placing its pieces and using causality to influence the world. And it doesn't like astral creatures and specifically elves because they're not human and they're chaotic by nature. And so they kind of throw a wrench in its plans, right? Mm-hmm. And oh, uh, They can't be manipulated as easily. Yeah, yeah, because they just, I mean, the idea of evil is fundamentally human. Uh, it's a god created by man and elves are not right. men, right? And so right. Uh, the fact the boy is associated with that, I don't know, I just think that's very interesting. It just, of course, it makes sense it's an easy connection, but still, you, you get that duality and the fact, uh, the way he was created, uh, the fact Femto took over his body, but the boy still survived and during full moons he can come back. Uh, just feels like to me, uh, Idea of Evil and the God Hand uh, messed up big time. Well, and especially like you said about him having that fairy, you know, sense about him, you know, it's yeah. going with your counter, you know, theory. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think it's going to bite them in the ass. Uh, and I think even though in this case we end on uh, Griffiths uh, revealing himself and it's kind of a big dramatic thing and probably not to God's advantage, right? I mean, Griffiths right. can just not even blink. Like his pupil will uh, contract and Gus will be flown back into a tree or something. But I feel like in the long run, that's his weakness. I mean, that's something I've said before. Right. But uh, yeah, so just... Very interesting. A lot of stuff revealed in this episode beyond just uh, the boy turning into Griffiths and Guts and Casca bearing witness to it. 
I actually had an interesting, what you said about, you know, this not being to Cut's advantage, you know, Griffith appearing like this, obviously. I had an interesting thought about it. I mean, it's not going to come to anything, obviously. But going back to the previous episode where we sort of established Isidro having, like, basically superpowers, you know, of mischief, you know, because of where he was on the island. And basically the island, you know, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of sympathizing with him, you know, yeah. like, you know, his, his, you know, his energy was matching its energy, you know, yeah. which is something you can feel in a crowd or whatever. If they don't have an advantage against Griffith here more than they normally would, maybe this is the weakest he would ever be anywhere in the world right now. Yeah, so, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, like they could be setting up the reverse there. So that would that would be interesting, you know, to see. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, it's also why I think because people, uh, if we if we speculate, I would what would have been next. Uh, I mean, my guess is first few pages we get the uh, the exhibition ski visual, which is a drawing of guts angrily swinging at something. I think that's him swinging at Griffiths. Uh, and I'm convinced that would have been in the first few pages of episode 369, and there wouldn't have been a long battle. People have been hyping up the idea of a duel between them since uh, uh, an interview by Mura in a French uh, journal called uh, Le Figaro. Where they took something he says that's very vague, like they're going to confront each other, and it's like, it's going to be a... yeah. <laughs> exactly, and at the time I asked the guy, hey, uh, would you happen to have the Japanese uh, version of that? And he was like, mm -mm, sorry, I didn't get it. Uh, it's Glenach who translated it. I was like, oh, that's a shame, because, yeah, maybe he just said they would have a confrontation or something, and... I, I do think they would have a, a skirmish here. I do think Guts would swing, Griffiths would do something. And maybe it's possible that, you know, he wouldn't just be instantly repelled because, yeah, this isn't Griffiths' home court. Yeah, exactly. I do think that as a member of the God Hand, not a boy anymore, uh, he isn't at his advantage on the island. And especially when you add to that the boy's love for his parents, uh, that's another potential handicap, especially if Casca gets involved. And then, not to mention Danan, the Great Gurus, and the Skull Knight waiting up in the bushes or somewhere. They're all in close proximity. So, yeah. If only Rickert were here to slap him again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's like what Skull Knight said about the Dragon Slayer, you know, when slammed with that sword, it's possible. We could, again, Flint could be saying, here, it's possible, you know, they can actually mm -hmm. stand, you know, against him. Not beat him, but, you know. Not get killed. I'm fantasizing about uh, <laughs> Griffiths course. getting like a scar on his, uh, on his chest and <laughs> coming back <laughs> and Locus sees it and he just, you know, bursts a vessel. Oh my god! <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> starts punching him in the mouth. <laughs> I, I think, I think uh, the key though is that, yeah, he wouldn't be able to last long. Guts is also not in great shape as we just saw. Uh, and, and Casca's there and she would, I mean, it's 100% sure she would freak out. Strangely in his armor at night, uh, Guts is, though. <laughs> he yeah. He sleeps in it, apparently. He sleep. those are his pajamas. Yeah. Actually, re regarding what you were saying, I, I thought something that was really interesting about Casca's reaction was that, uh, obviously, seeing the child, I wonder, in that last scene, she didn't react to Guts at all. Yeah. Was she just not paying attention to him at all, or was the child's presence somehow involved? Also, his back was turned to her. That too. Yeah, I uh, I also wonder about that. That's the first thing actually I thought when I saw the previews. Is she yeah. she's uh, I think I said so on our preview podcast. She's in that doorway, but she's not freaking out. 
So what's going yeah. on? And uh, what's going on? Yeah. yeah. And so there's several things going on. First, there's a boy that she can probably still sense, and she saw he transformed. She sees Griffiths. Uh, we know her memory of the eclipse is still not fresh. She had that flashback right. of him in the cell, uh, tortured. But here it's uh, just normal Griffiths back. Yeah, just back to normal. What's going on? Hey, buddy, long time no see. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and then <laughs> yeah, there's also wounds, you know, from the tower. <laughs> But uh, imagine her then having that recollection suddenly of what happened during the eclipse. Horrible. She would, mm-hmm. she would just like is beyond freaking out, right? Then there's Guts, right. who she usually freaks out seeing, but not this time. And so I also think Mira would have uh, worked in all that stuff into her getting a little bit better. Uh, maybe going, getting worse first, having a, another episode because of what she remembers, yeah. but then being able to surmount her problems with the guts, uh, regaining some of her memories, working on them, either <coughs> being able to tolerate guts a little bit more or uh, going towards him, uh, striking out on his own for a while. You know, regardless, some development on that front. So I think, you know, yeah. it's also some things that's in there. It's not just the boy, it's not just everything. Casca's mental problems also addressed, or at least beginning to be addressed in this episode too. Well, I think they mentioned that being, you know, this has to help Casca heal, you know, being, you know, with the boy. Like, <coughs> it can only help her. And, yeah, you're right. right. Getting the full picture could kind of, that could just sort of recalibrate perspective for her where she won't feel this way about guts because clearly guts isn't the problem you know she'll see that yeah. here's the problem you know not not guts so that could be you mm-hmm. know part of it too yeah of course and uh, obviously i mean this is that moment seeing the boy seeing the boy's lone tear as he gets uh, knocked in the locked in the basement by femto and seeing Griffiths probably tells them, fuck you guys, I ain't coming no more. The boy stays locked from now on and I'm going, going away. That's the impetus for them to get out of the island, go after Griffiths, get to Falconia, find a way to save the boy, uh, split Femto apart and cut his head off or whatever, but at least try to save the son. And that's, that's the last journey. That's the last objective, the, the last quest, if you will, whatever. It's them saving their son. And I've said right. so a hundred times before, but to me, this is really like the, the key moment for them. Is they don't need the island to burn. They don't need whatever. They even don't need, uh, in truth, the whole time thing. What they need is they have to go save the son, save the boy. And saving the world will be... Uh, how to say consequential to that? It's just oh yeah, sure. Also, we we'll also save the it's world. It's the cherry on top. Yeah, and, and the same goes for the revenge. And I think that's some things that would have been a very big part of uh, Guts' character development uh, as we went towards the end of the series. Is Guts, of course, the revenge is not going to ever completely forget the revenge uh, as he shoots Femto in the face with his arm cannon. <laughs> that's for judo, motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but still, Can't it would have been right in the teeth. <laughs> yeah, it would have been it would have been uh, I think Sagan to saving the son. And uh, I feel like if you look at the journey of Guts as a character, starting in the Black Souls Monarch, really at the lowest of the low, down in the pits, basically waiting to do anything just to kill an apostle, uh, to having something to live for, you know, be, just mm-hmm. going beyond just that. And that's also of course yeah. goes 
together with taming the beast of darkness and uh, fueling it towards more productive things, uh, mastering the armor, and just, I don't know, having a life to live. So, yeah. Well, and those things are things that Skull Knight did not have, uh, leading to him to be who he is. Someone who did not have, you know, the love of his life still around, you know, a child to be <clears throat> something more important than just seeking revenge. And instead, you know, he became basically a haunted, you know, armor as a result. Yeah, Skull Knight is interesting because Geyseric failed, so mm-hmm. he probably tried to he probably tried to get uh, the upper hand over the god hand, but he got fucked. His empire got destroyed. His woman got killed. He himself got killed, uh, and he had nothing left, and he was dead. And Flora brought him back, and he's been living as basically as a ghost. Uh, haunting them uh, since then. That's, that's basically his life. And so he's a tragic figure, of course. And the, what's a great thing is his guts, despite everything, despite not being an emperor, not being anything, not having magic users for uh, a long time uh, as uh, allies, he still managed to get by. And uh, and yeah, he's, he's on the way to actually succeed. So that's also the beauty of it is you had this previous guy who failed despite being at the top of the world. And now we have a guy who's crawling in, been crawling in the mud for since he was born, basically. And that guy, somehow, is going to do it. He's on track to becoming a better version of Skull Knight. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not... I don't think it's a matter of being a... Hopefully he, hopefully he won't become Skull Knight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> period. No, I, I was thinking about uh, Griffith and how time and time again he goes on to try to convince everybody like he's well griffith at this point is not griffith he's femto and he's this unfeeling thing but when he was griffith it was always about you know his dream comes first anything else pushing away emotions exactly and when uh guts first started his quest for revenge he was sort of the same way paralleling yeah just concentrated on killing and uh, I think Guts has eventually become a much better person now that he has realized that he has things to live for yeah yeah the thing you know he has yeah go ahead finish oh yeah you know he has his friends he has Casca and uh Thematically, I think that's uh, definitely uh, a big storyline there with regards to pushing away emotion or embracing emotion, embracing acknowledgement of your weakness and shortcomings. I think that had the series continued, Casca would have factored into that as well, because being the tertiary main character and being the main uh, love interest of the main character, she's she, mm. I feel like, has always been in touch with her emotions more than the other two guys, you know, and that would have been so interesting to explore how Guts and Griffith are kind of like pushing away, pushing away, pushing away emotion the whole series. And Casca has been the only one to really uh, acknowledge her feelings and her weaknesses because she's been forced to so many times. Mm. And she's also the they acknowledge their feelings too when they have, when Griffith was human. Exactly. When, you know, they finally came together. Yeah. Right, that's such a good point. And I think that would have definitely factored into the thematic conclusion mm. of the series. Yeah, for sure. She, I mean, like Griffin, you said exactly, she was the one to bring out the emotions and make Guts in particular recognize his emotions. 
uh, during the Golden Age arc. And to get back to Guts, I think the main difference with Griffiths is even during the Black Swordsman arc, when he's being a dick to, uh, to Puck, when he's being called to Colette, uh, he, you can tell he's pretending not to care. He's hurt. Mm-hmm. When, when Colette dies, he even vomits uh, he, he like he takes it personally with Vargas he takes it he takes it personally that he wasn't able to save him and he tries to how to say stonewall himself be cold don't care be cynical but at the time Puck sees through him already yeah. and uh, and I think it's like Rickard says uh, when they meet again uh, when Gus t- takes up on his journey to be the Black Swordsman he comes at a fork in the road at some point and he could have gone one pass and just been destroyed, consumed by the darkness, just basically die fighting like an idiot in some swamp and forgotten by everybody. And because of Puck, uh, he took the other pass. He went back a little towards the light, then he went to get Casca, uh, then he met friends and accepted them, and, and that's how he got on this path. But I think even during the Black Souls Monarch, he's never truly like cold and emotionless. You know what I mean? He never uh, goes over that line. Yeah. No, that was that was his desire. I yeah, think. The yeah. The irony is he was kind of trying to be like Griffith or Fento himself, and he obviously yeah. admired Griffith is, and his ambition and his dreams. And you know, the series in a lot of ways, you know, overall is about the downside of being a cold, calculating, ambitious person, rather than what Guts is becoming, which is like this, this whole person, you know, that you know is in touch with you know what's important to them, and you know. The yeah. better things in their life and you see also the frailty in trying to be like such a brittle person you know it's, you're eventually going to break like Griffith did and you're not going to end up with you know the same uh, fruits in life like Cuts has found yeah and maybe to conclude I find it very interesting that for a cold and emotionless character like Femto his weakness would be the emotions of a little boy who misses his mommy and daddy yeah, pure, pure emotions. Yeah. yeah, that really says it. Hmm. Maybe like in the Black Swordsman arc, he's crying because he really feels feelings. Come on, Az. it's He feels bad. <laughs> he wants redemption. <laughs> <laughs> no? no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> well, we said it at the top of the show, and I'll say it here, that you know this is, for all intents and purposes, uh, the next episode of Berserk. And that's often, you know, throughout this whole experience, what it has felt like to me is that it is another episode of Berserk because we went through the same release cycle, hype cycle. We got the previews and and more than we normally get. We got to be excited about what's coming. We've talked a lot about what the episode will be. And then we got to talk about it here. Uh, But, you know, normally our our thoughts turn to the future, but, you know, there is no written future. So Mm. I think it's appropriate that we approach this uh, at this point not just as the next Berserk episode, but as, you know, the end, uh, is, as we know it for Berserk. Mm. Uh, so I wondered if you guys had anything to say about this episode as the end uh, for the series. Um, Aziel, I wanted you to start, if you could. Sure. Well, I mean, it's tough, of course. Uh, like every fan, I would have wanted more, so much more. Uh, I, I'd kill to get just one more episode, really. But life's unfair and we won't get one. Uh, this was the last there's one thing I want to emphasize to those who listen to us is that uh, Berserk stops with episode 364, but it's not Berserk's ending. 
I know people find solace in viewing this as a great ending point in the story, like they did with 263 before, and I don't mean to criticize them for it, it's fine. However, I think it's important to remember that Mira Sensei planned for many more things to go down. And while we'll never know for sure what he would have drawn for us, we are blessed to be able to imagine these developments. In a way, it's not so different from what we've done over these past 20 years, especially in the past decade as the releases slowed down. We thought and speculated and debated, and that was a pleasure in and of itself. <clears throat> I believe that so long as we keep thinking and dreaming about Berserk, it will stay alive forever. So let's just do that. I mean, we did some of it on this uh, show. Would Dana have stopped Griffiths? Was the Skull Knight lying in wait, ready to hit his mark this time? Would Kaskav yelled out for Gus to stop? These are just a few of the many, many things we've got to ponder for the next 20, 40, 60 years. It's just another long hiatus until we find out in the next life. Balzac forever. Well said. People who have their plans for the afterlife, who they'd want to see again, you know, an old relative. It's like I'm making a beeline for Mira. Where is he? <laughs> There'll be a line for sure. Yeah, there's no language barrier yeah. in heaven, right? <laughs> right. Uh, Gabola Tula said this at the start of the show, and that I do believe as well that this episode was a gift. Uh, and posthumously, uh, it was a surprise uh, for, for me and for many other fans. You know, I had kind of hung up my hat on the notion that, you know, Miura's work was done with 363, that being a final completed episode. And all we would get left are scraps, you know, sketches, some unfinished work. But instead we got this, as I said, last cycle of excitement. And even right now at this moment, we're talking about this episode, we're recording this episode, we're still in the midst of that excitement. So it still doesn't feel over for me, even knowing that it says Owari at the end of this episode. So I wonder if it'll ever feel over because... As we know, this is not an ending with any authorial intent. You know, it's abrupt. Uh, it's the ending that we were given. Uh, the rest is up to us, as Azil said. So that's a pretty familiar place for us to be. You know, ever since we started, uh, because of, uh, Berserk is an episodic series and spread across many years, the future of Berserk has always lived in our heads. Uh, and that's where it will remain uh, for the hereafter. So the rest really is up to us to imagine it, to be excited about it, to be excited about the possibilities that are out there. But uh, it's up to us to finish those stories. Yeah, I uh, I wrote a little. Well, I wrote a lot of bit about it. I probably won't go into all that, but I will just uh, point out, you know, a lot of what we've already said. How all this material in this episode was a fantastic addition. Like every, I mean, it's like it's like a great episode as always. But this would have been like if this were just the next episode, and we were waiting for three sixty five. This would be a great episode. Like this would be one of my favorites. So mm. that's a great thing. I I took the you know thinking of it as an ending to Berserk. You know, I'm of two minds on it. Of course, like as said, and you know, Walter pointed out, there's no authorial intent here. This is not Berserk's ending, but it is going to be the ending. Uh, in that sense, I think, uh, despite what a great addition is, it's also a little jarring. It twists the knife a little because it makes me want 365 so much, you know, because it's ending literally <laughs> in a, during a transformative moment, <laughs> you know, where, you know, we're seeing Griffith that there was going to be, whereas the last, mo the last episode, uh, the last one released during, uh, Mira's life happened to end with this quiet, you know, sort of falling action, you know, it was like a pregnant pause and then 
this was going to happen. You know, it was going to restart with a bunch of new stuff and take off. So it's sort of just that interesting thing of I'm still wrestling with and reconciling, you know, how I'm going to, you know, resolve all this within myself. I was, you know, really excited to do this, really exuberant and excited to just talk about this episode. And yeah, probably more emotional than, uh, than I thought it would be, you know, going on doing a current episodes, uh, thread, even, uh, like when we did the podcast, you know, essentially talking about the end in the first place. So, yeah, I think it's still something we're going to be wrestling with, and we'll continue to do that. And who knows, our perspectives might continue to change. You know, Walter said, you know, there probably there still are scraps potentially we might see. We might get more information, if not, you know, we're not going to get more episodes, but we could see panels and things from those episodes that could, you know, give us more perspective. Hmm. Hmm. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like you guys have really said it all. I can I can only say from my own experience that when 364 was announced, I was surprised and also a little bit scared. I'm ashamed to say because I felt like 363 ended on such a note where, you know, like you guys talked about, I, I felt like there was closure. We could be satisfied with what we had. And when the episode finally came out, I realized how wrong I was and that it was really an episode, despite not being the intended ending that Mira would have wanted, it was, it was satisfying and, and I felt like as a fan, like I could, I could enjoy it and really, uh, enjoy thinking about the possibilities of the future and, it's funny because we, in the so many years that I've been following Berserk episodically, I felt like we've just been endlessly speculating. And knowing that will always be the case, it, it feels strange and it feels wrong because I know that that's not me, what Mira would have wanted for his fans. But uh, we just kind of have to take it where it is. And I'm grateful for the time that we have had with Berserk and will continue to have them. Um, so grateful that Mira gifted us with this series, with his amazing talent and with his humanity and his storytelling. And I will always be a lifelong fan of Berserk. Um, yeah. What everybody already said was absolutely beautiful. And I want to just go ahead and echo, um, I'd also like to say something about the people who have automatically immediately started asking, well, can there be a continuation? Can somebody else pick up this work? Um, I, I want to say while I'm frustrated at reading all those thoughts. So immediately after, uh, Mira's passed away, I also understand uh, wanting more. Um, as a as a berserk fan, it's it's hard to not always want to read more berserk. And the the sad thing is, is um, you know, it's over and Mira's gone. And to me, and to uh, you know, a lot of us, berserk ends with with Mira. Mira was berserk without him. Um, there can't be any more. And there's a possibility that somewhere down the line, someone might 
do something with the story, their version, but that's not going to be berserk to me. And, um, you know, it's, it's just all, um, it was again, very wonderful to have this one last episode. And over the past couple, uh, months, it's been great looking over Mira's work again and, uh, just appreciating what we had. And, uh, you know, also making me appreciate the friends I've made through um, through being a fan of Berserk. Um, I think that my life and all of our lives here are, have been so much better having read this work. And I'll always be grateful, and I'll always love Kentaro Mira. Yep. That's it for the show, guys. Thanks for listening to this uh, episode. Uh, we'll be back in a few weeks to uh, talk about Volume 26, Part 3, I suppose. Uh, as always, please check out our forum, skullnight.net slash forum, if you have not already. We have 20 years worth of a community there to read our thoughts. Along with, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash sknet, where we are supporting our resident translator, Puella. She offers translations of the episodes, interviews with Mira, and lots of other stuff you should definitely check out that Azil has been keeping that um, stuff going with uh, every week as an update. So check it out, patreon.com slash sknet. Speaking of which, I wanted to give a shout out to our gold subscribers who include Spacey Laos, Dirtiest M, myself, Rombad, Incantation, and M. Thanks for contributing, everybody. <laughs>